Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Thomas Fleming, the author of The Great Divide. Thomas Fleming, author of The Great Divide, the conflict between Jefferson and Washington that defined a nation. You have a lot of historical figures in your book. Do you have a favorite one? Uh, the favorite one, I think, uh, I had no point in trying to kid anybody, was, is Washington. Uh, uh, but uh, <clears throat> there are other people that uh, attract me, too, though. There's, uh, that uh, James Madison, for instance, I think he's fascinated because he's so enigmatic. He had this loyalty to Washington, and then he switched to Jefferson. And then, but then I think one of the best bits of research I have in the book is at the end of his life, Madison came around and he was back with Washington again, long after Washington had died. You know, but he was saying the things that, that the general said. Why do you think Washington's your favorite character? <clears throat> I think he's, uh, I think I have an, a basic instinct for, uh, Military men, uh, for one thing. My father was uh, commissioned in the field in the World War One. He was a top sergeant. Every officer in his in his company were killed or wounded, and they said, "Fleming, you're not a sergeant anymore. You're a lieutenant." And that, they, he fought as a lieutenant for the rest of the war. And he he was an army guy all the way, you know. And and that led me then to write a history of West Point. I spent three and a half years there, and. Uh, interesting, Washington ties into this quite well. I, I must have met, uh, oh, 20 or 30 generals over the course of these three years. I was interested in their careers in the Army, but then I would have a conversation with them, and I often asked them what they thought of Washington as a general. Every one of them said he was a great general. And I said, why? He lost more battles than he won. And they said, because he could think. He changed the strategy of the war while the war was going on. And that is what a general is all about. I, it, it, it was the day that we're talking to these guys was, was when I realized that strategy is a crucial word in a general's vocabulary. It's, it's the top of thinking about how you fight a war. You, know? you start with a strategy. And if you don't have a strategy, watch out. <laughs> How do you write a book that includes George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Madison, and and come up with something new? I, I found uh, uh, little by little, as I uh, was re writing books about Washington, uh, <coughs> I saw that uh, there were moments when uh, he was he, he he didn't have the support that that you would think Jefferson would give him, and uh, but they they still remained friends. Uh, and, and then the more I dug into it, the more I began to realize that th there was a sort of a turning point in, in their relationship where they became not just uh, 
no longer friends, but actually almost enemies. Uh, and and uh, they started to, this was after Jefferson became Secretary of State, and he was theoretically working for Washington, but Jefferson never saw it that way. And, <coughs> uh, and, and that's when I really got interested in the possibility that there was a conflict between these two men, and then I had to find out what the conflict was and what it meant in terms of the whole country and, and their lives and their careers and so forth. What was the conflict? <clears throat> the conflict was basically whether we should have a strong president or not. Uh, <clears throat> Jefferson, when, when Jefferson saw the Constitution, he was over, he, he missed, this is very important, uh, Jefferson missed the whole Constitution. He was the ambassador to France all the time that uh, it, the Constitution started to get written when Madison, James Madison, showed up uh, at Mount Vernon and, and they sat on the pad, that wonderful patio looking out at the Potomac and they both agreed that they, that they had to get a, a, a stronger federal government to govern 13 contentious states. They could, Washington could see uh, towards the end of, of, of the revolution, uh, in, in roughly 1783 or 1782, he said, I see, I see one head turning into 13. And this was when Jefferson, uh, Washington rather, uh, began to think in terms of, the, of a word that has huge resonance in American history, the Union. He saw that it was crucial to keep these 13 states in one country. Otherwise, he saw we were going to turn into another Europe, and the South would be, well, no, maybe not the whole South, but Georgia and, and, uh, and, and South Carolina would, might form a separate country, and they wouldn't get along with North Carolina and Virginia, or there would be southern, uh, northern states, rather, who would disagree and so forth. And the next thing you know, uh, there would be all-out war between these different sections of the country. As, as a matter of fact, when Hamilton... Alexander Hamilton uh, left, he was Washington's aide uh, for many years during the war, and then he became a congressman. And uh, after a few uh, uh, months in Congress, he wrote a letter to the governor of New York, and he said, I have a suggestion. Uh, I think it would be a good idea if we gave free land to all the former veterans of the revolution. Uh, he said, because they could turn out to be very useful soldiers when the, when the Civil War begins between New York and nearby states. So Washington, when he resigned the army and went back to being a farmer, he, he, did he stay politically involved? He did, yes. Uh, but he uh, did it very carefully. You know, he, he, he knew that this was a huge step. And I might add, it's a step that won Jefferson's admiration. Uh, the, the Jefferson, uh, uh, he's, he's not, you know, totally opposed to Washington or a total critic or anything like that. And, and he was one of those who recognized that if it wasn't for this one man, the revolution would have ended like the Civil War in, in, in Britain in the previous century where Oliver Cromwell uh, won the war and he was the ruling general and there was every, every other general in sight was flat on his back. And Cromwell walked into Parliament and said, goodbye, goodbye. And the next thing you know, they had a dictator named Oliver Cromwell. And this was what terrified so many people during 
the American Revolution, that Washington was going to turn into this dictator, because they saw that it happened in, in, in the previous century in England. And, uh, and, and, and Washington, he picked up these kind of things. He was very aware of what people were saying about him, as well as what he was thinking about them. And uh, he made very sure I, I, that he was not going to make this mistake. He was going to step out of, of the, the office of the general and become an ordinary citizen again and put himself, you might say, at the mercy of Congress. Why did he not want to be a dictator? Why didn't he do what everybody expected him to do? There, there's, a, there's, a, there's a very interesting biography recently about Washington. It's a series of essays by a very good historian. It's called uh, Realistic Visionary. Uh, or mm, it might be visionary realist, <laughs> yeah, but that, that's the idea. And I think this, this uh, uh, man grasped something really important about Washington. He really was not only a, a thinking man's general, but he had a vision of the country. He really was an idealist in, in, in that sense. He saw that this war could end as a, and, and, and make America a beacon of liberty for the whole world. And this is a very interesting point, which I don't think many people know uh, about the American Revolution. <coughs> uh, after the war, Washington's, I guess you might call it a prophecy, although he never stated it in so many words or anything like that, but this is what he saw America as a beacon of freedom, uh, meaning for the, for the whole world. Over the next 150 years, over 200 Declarations of Independence were issued by various countries all over the world, and they all echoed the American Declaration of Independence, which was written by Thomas Jefferson, I might add. <laughs> well, were he and, and George Washington allies in the beginning? <clears throat> oh, absolutely, yes. Well, I mean, uh, uh, they, 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 they weren't allies in terms of, uh, shall we say, uh, plotting to, to get the America to declare independence and so forth. Washington didn't feel that was his job or part of his, his knowledge and uh, talent. So he, he remained uh, a silent witness. But uh, as, as the argument about independence became sort of uh, violent in, in the Continental Congress, he showed up one day wearing his uniform. Uh, the uniform that he wore when he was uh, in, as a Virginia soldier in the French and Indian War. And he didn't, he didn't have to say anything. Everybody knew where he stood when, he, when they saw that. That was a typical Washingtonian movement, you know. It, it wasn't big on words, but it, it did say of something very important. And it had a lot to do, I think, with John Adams then realizing uh, everybody hates Massachusetts, and, which was more or less true. The Puritans were not popular with the rest of the country, you know. And so Adams thought, there's only one way we're going to be able to survive, and that is we got to get a general from Virginia, and then when they came time to write the Declaration of Independence, who was on the committee but Thomas Jefferson? And people said, oh, Adams should write it. He's been writing things stuff. And no, no. Je Adams said to Jefferson, no, you're a better writer than I am. But he was from Virginia. <laughs> and this may have been a white lie on John's part, but that's how they got this the biggest state in the Union. We have to realize Virginia was gigantic in terms of most of the other states in those days. It was twice the, as big as any, any other state. Pennsylvania was about the only one that came, you know, in that track. Well, it also had four of the first five presidents. Yes, yes, and that's why, because they were so powerful in, 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 uh, in, in various ways. And people 
wanted to have them on their side, you might say, the people who, who, who are in politics. You know, and, uh, I want to read you something from your book. This is about halfway through, and you yeah. say, <clears throat> in spite of all the evidence that he had experienced firsthand, Jefferson still regarded Washington as some sort of uneducated simpleton whom he, the brilliant graduate of College of William and Mary, could manipulate at will. I'm afraid that's uh, true, but I perhaps stated a little too strongly. <laughs> he never called Washington a simpleton to anybody, and uh, uh, you get when you when, write, when you're deep in a book, and, and as this as I am when I as I was when I wrote that those pages, you you're, you really get the passion starts to beat, you know, and you you it, it starts the the words start pouring out off your fingers onto the computer, and uh, and and so I I, I would temper that a little and say, basically, the essence of what is, I, I say there is true, that Jefferson did have a faintly, or maybe not so faint, superiority attitude towards Washington, because after all, he knew he barely got out of the fourth grade. And Jefferson was not only a talented graduate of the university, but of uh, 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 William and Mary, but he was a very successful attorney before he went into politics. And <clears throat> that also took quite a bit of brain power in those days. The lawyers were the intellectual uh, upper strata and the guys that made the most money in America before the re revolution. So th th that's, th I would say that, that that is the essence of why uh, there was a, a, a sort of sense of strain as, 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 as Washington and Jefferson started arguing about uh, various things that were being uh, proposed by his cabinet. Uh, the, the, the biggest, of course, was Alexander Hamilton's uh, whole taxation system and uh, his uh, decision to have a Bank of the United States, uh, which would sell shares and they would raise money to pay off this huge debt. Th this is something else that, that I don't think enough Americans realize. Th there was only roughly uh, two to three million people during the revolutionary era, you know, and uh, that, uh, and uh, we ran up a debt in monetary terms, our monetary terms, of a billion dollars to win the revolution. That was a lot of money. I mean, you know, they didn't say it was a billion, it was several dozen million and so forth, but, uh, uh, but they wanted, it was very important that they pay these off, pay this off, and when Washington became president, the United States had defaulted on everything. They hadn't even paid the interest to the French and the Dutch who had loaned us this money. And so our credit around the world was worth nothing. And nobody would loan any money to, a, to an American merchant. Uh, it, it was, it, the, the country was in a state of semi-paralysis. And <clears throat> so Washington thought that this idea of Hamilton's was very, very good, and he did not <clears throat> warm up to Jefferson's attitude that it was it was had the essence of corruption in it. It was going to create a moneyed class, this, that, and everything else. And, you know, he, he just Washington didn't buy it. He saw what it was doing for the economy of the country. He was very good businessman. Washington was. What was Jefferson's vision for the country at the time? <clears throat> Jefferson's vision for the country was a nation of farmers, semi-independent farmers, and they would get together ever so often to vote, and they, but they didn't need uh, a, a, a leader or anything like that. Washington 
totally disagreed with this concept. He felt that leadership was crucial. He knew this for, as a soldier, and but he also saw it as a politician because he had a deal with this Continental Congress for eight years. And they were in and out of so many different issues. Uh, they, 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 first of all, he said, I think if we're going to keep an army in being, we have to give the, our officers a promise of a pension after the war. Oh, no, an awful lot of people in Congress didn't like it. There was huge arguments and so forth. And finally, the pension passed by one vote. And, and uh, if it wasn't for that, I say this, this was in the, the, during the, uh, the Valley Forge. And uh, I say, if, we hadn't, if that hadn't passed, we probably would have lost the war because these officers were going uh, to quit. Why didn't Washington just uh, ignore the Congress? Why did he put up with it? And because, again, that was, that was part of his feeling that uh, they were the voice of the people to some extent. And uh, although they, the longer a man was in Congress, the more totally he forgot, uh, the more he forgot exactly what people he was representing <laughs> besides his own ideas. We see, we see that in Congress today, of course. But uh, uh, he, he, he wanted to keep this whole uh, combination of leadership and uh, uh, and a voice of the people uh, at Congress. He, he thought the two of them went equally necessary. But, of course, we had this Congress, which, as I say, drove him crazy again and again and again throughout the war. And, uh, but he was not afraid to lead them when they had to be led, even when he was a general. And, and the greatest example of that is uh, Congress had a strategy. It stank. Uh, his, uh, this Congress's strategy was to win the war in one big battle. Uh, and they were going to do this by sort of repeating uh, the Lexington and Concord, you know, where, they had, where after the Lexington they marched to Concord, the British did. Meanwhile, the thousands of, of Minutemen swarmed from all parts of Massachusetts, and the 700 British soldiers were suddenly confronted by about 5,000 uh, militiamen with guns in their hands. And they barely got back to Boston in one piece. So there were, a lot of them were killed. And, uh, and so the, 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 the guys in Massachusetts particularly thought, this is how we win the war. Uh, the, the, we just wait for the British to, to dare to send an army over here. And, 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 you know, and they had a very important influence in their thinking in this point. Tom Paine saw himself as a grand thinker, you know, in all sorts of ways. And so he, he told Congress, Great Britain is broke. They, they don't have enough money to send a big army over to America. And their fleet is rotting in the harbors. They don't have any money to keep it in shape. So it's going to be very simple to win independence. Nothing to it. Just declare. And then <clears throat> when the British send this puny little army over, roll right over them with one of your mobs of militiamen, you know, and that will be the end of the war. Uh, <clears throat> Instead, the British sent the biggest army they ever sent overseas to America, 30,000 men, including all these Germans that they hired to fight for, for them. And they were accompanied by a fleet of 400 ships, not exactly an example of a, of a fleet that was about to collapse. And so suddenly Washington who oh, by this time have been told, you don't need a lot of regular soldiers. We'll just call out these militia. And <clears throat> so Washington had about 10,000 regulars. 
and the rest were these militia that they called up from various states around New York. <clears throat> and he went out to Brooklyn and he took on this big British army and they beat the living daylights out of him. And <clears throat> he barely extricated his army and staggered back to New York, to, to Manhattan from Brooklyn. And, uh, and then <clears throat> they landed in, Bro landed in New York. Uh, again, the Navy uh, bombarded and the, uh, this rather large army swarmed ashore and Washington had nothing to do but retreat, head for the hills and so forth. And <clears throat> But <clears throat> he was, at this point, all kinds of people were saying, let's, let's make a deal, let's, uh, we're going to get killed here, you know, and so forth. And the, the panic was reigning in the army. And, but Washington did not lose his head. Instead, he said, from now on, he wrote a letter to John Hancock, the president of Congress. He said, from now on, we will never risk one big battle, which they called a general action. We will never risk its general action. Instead, we shall protract the war. And that was the key. <clears throat> it was a brilliant strategy, but it did take a long time to win. So seven years later, we won the war. And meanwhile, an awful lot of people were criticizing Washington, but he stuck to the strategy, to strategy. And this is why so many people at West Point say that Washington was a great general, because he, he really saw that there was a way to win the war, and he stuck to it. And, uh, uh, and, and this was not easy to do, because he was being criticized very often by, by John Adams and all kinds of other people. I wish we had all day to talk about this because there's so much to talk about that's in your book. Yes, but I want to yeah. ask you about Thomas Jefferson. Did your opinion of Thomas Jefferson change as, through the course of writing this book? I, it, came, it changed as the course of writing two books. I wrote a book about Thomas Jefferson uh, uh, back in uh, 1969, and I praised him rather extravagantly. I called him the man from Monticello. Uh, but it was it was called an intimate biography. I stayed away, more or less, from his, the politics of the whole of his whole story. I played up how what a devoted parent he was and grandparent, and uh, his friendship for Madison and uh, his, his 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 talents as an architect and a, and a and a writer and and a, and a thinker about the Bible and all sorts of things like that, you know, and. Uh, so I, he, I presented him as a fascinating character. But uh, once I started uh, to tell the whole story of the revolution, and Jefferson then became the, not lo no longer the man who wrote the Declaration of Independence, but the governor of Virginia. And this was in 1779 and 1780. He spent two years as governor of Virginia, and he was a disaster. He didn't have the knack of governing. And, and so uh, at the end of... Uh, of his uh, second term as, as, as governor, somebody in, in the Virginia legislature suggested that maybe Jefferson ought to be reprimanded uh, because he had done such a poor job. And he quit. He said I would, he wouldn't seek another term. And, uh, uh, and, and there was serious talk about sort of, you can't impeach a man who's no longer in office, but there was serious talk about reprimanding him publicly. And he went back to Monticello and he announced he would never spend another day in politics. Why did Washington want him in his cabinet in the first place? Because he had a, a, a great reputation 
uh, all over the world thanks to the Declaration of Independence. And only after, during the war, he wasn't known that well known as the, as the author of the Declaration. Congress issued the Declaration in its name, and it rewrote Jefferson's version very heavily. But uh, nonetheless, uh, it, it, the, the word got out, and by, 19, by, by 1784 and 85, he was well known as the author, author of the Declaration. And so when Congress persuaded him to abandon his refusal to go into politics, and Madison persuaded him really uh, to go and become ambassador to France, he was famous over there for the Declaration of Independence. Lafayette just adored it, adored the Declaration, and and so forth. And it had a lot to do with stimulating the the French Revolution, which was sort of percolating below the surface as Jefferson arrived. Jefferson was in France during the yeah French he was Revolution? there for the first several years of the Revolution, and there was a a, 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 a division between him and and uh, and, and Washington. Uh, Jefferson fell in love with France, and he fell in love in particular with the French Revolution, and he basically didn't think they could do anything wrong. Washington looked on France as, yes, they had given him a lot of money, and so they give, loaned us a lot of money and so forth, but he was a realist. Washington knew that it wasn't that they loved America, and they were giving us all this money, and they finally even sent an army over to help us win. It was because they hated the English so much, and it was a great coup for the French to enable these 13 big colonies in North America to separate from England and become a separate country. That, that, that cut the big chunk out of the British Empire, which the French were definitely interested in doing. And Washington understood all this. Jefferson didn't seem to really dig this aspect of it. And as a result, when he got over to, uh, uh, when he came back to America and, and, and Washington persuaded, or Madison again, persuaded him to become Secretary of State, uh, and uh, Washington was uh, a little stunned to hear him denouncing people who criticize France. Uh, uh, John Adams, for instance, had written a very critical essay saying that the, the French were putting together a disaster of a government. Uh, it was not what we, the court of thing that we had done in the Constitution with checks and balances and so forth. It was just one big assembly, a gigantic one at that, and it was not going to succeed. Well, Jefferson was infuriated. And, and was saying rotten things about Adams, who was the vice president, and so forth. And, uh, and then came a really big decisive moment in, in the book and, and in their relationship. Uh, uh, the French guillotine Louis XVI and the Jacobins, as they call them, the radicals, took over. And uh, they announced that they were going to war with England. And this was very big news. Uh, and uh, Washington announced to his cabinet, we're not getting in this war. He, he saw that America was becoming very prosperous thanks to Hamilton's system, and there was no way that, that we were going to get in this war he did, unless there was something really decisive happened from, from, one, from either France or you know, an attack by French or an attack by the British. So he announced a proclamation of neutrality. Jefferson was infuriated by this. Jefferson wanted the U.S. to get in the war. Oh, definitely, yes. On the side of France. Well, he he, he said yes. He, he emotionally he did want to. He he wanted to make. He claimed he wanted to make the French agree to certain things and so forth before we agreed to to, to endorse this pro, the proclamation of neutrality. But more to the point, far more than all, that. Those, those are minor details. More to the point was that 
uh, Congress, it, uh, Jefferson wanted Congress to be convened and, and, and approve Washington's proclamation of neutrality. And Washington said, absolutely not. See, he learned not to go near Congress if he could possibly help it. <laughs> and he said, I, uh, I have the power as president to, to proclaim the United States neutral. And, and this, this, this whole idea of, of Washington as a leader, a presidential leader, is very, very important. It's crucial. And, and everything that Jefferson saw uh, as he emerged as this leader, he didn't like. That's all there was to it. For instance, Washington wrote a letter to every major country in the world. And he said, if you want to get in touch, this is President Washington, if you want to get in touch with the United States of America, don't write to Congress, write to me. President Washington, and uh, again Jefferson didn't like this. He wanted, he wanted Congress to 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 have a much more a much louder, more powerful voice. Whereas Washington saw that Congress was was a, a body that would 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 be ready to respond to a good good leadership from a president. And this is what he tried to give them. It was a partnership, in other words. And, and Jefferson did not see this at all. He didn't like it. Did, did Jefferson ever disagree with Washington publicly? Uh, no, uh, but he, he, he revealed his dislike in, in, a, in a number of very significant ways. Uh, when, when Washington died suddenly uh, in 1799, Jefferson was vice president of the United States, and of course they had a stupendous funeral in, Washington, in, in Philadelphia and uh, uh, so forth. And, uh, uh, and what happened? Jefferson carefully avoided attending the funeral. He, by that time, he had become so antagonistic to Washington that he couldn't bring himself to go and, uh, and, and, and go to his funeral. You say in your book, uh, two years after her husband's death, Martha Washington told a visiting congressman that she regarded Mr. Jefferson as one of the most detestable of mankind. Yes, and that may have that that failure to go to his funeral may have had something to do with it. Uh, and and there's, there's there's another little touch with that, that that congressman. She told him the two worst days of her life were one, the day that George died, and two, the day that Mr. Jefferson came to offer his condolences. <laughs> So there's not much doubt we, that Martha, although she was not a bad politician, but she never really had any political beliefs that she didn't get from George. And she got these very strong opinions of Mr. Jefferson from her husband. There's no doubt about it. It sounds from your book like Thomas Jefferson was working all the time behind the scenes to undermine George Washington, but kept his own hands clean. Yes, he did, very definitely. He let Madison, uh, James Madison, who was a very powerful voice in Congress, and then James Monroe, who came in a little later, he was a senator, uh, they did the, the talking and the criticism. And, uh, and even while, he was, while, while Jefferson was Secretary of State, they, they launched a newspaper. Uh, a, a, a Princeton classmate uh, of Madison's named Philip Furneaux uh, was a very good writer. He was a quite a gifted poet. And th so they hired him as a translator in the State Department and then encouraged him to start this newspaper, which they er encouraged all their friends to subscribe to. And the next thing you know, this newspaper was tearing Hamilton apart. And the next thing you know, they were going after President Washington. At one point uh, in Furneaux's paper, uh, there was a cartoon of President Washington on a board being carried 
to a waiting guillotine. And this was, this, 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 this newspaper was sponsored by Thomas Jefferson, the Secretary of State. Did Washington know that Jefferson was behind all this? He was very, very much aware of it, yes. But there was never any uh, overt admission. But there's no doubt that he knew what was going on. Washington, another aspect of Washington that, that we, most people don't know about is he was a superb spy master. During the revolution, he had spy rings all over the place, and they all reported back to him. And he, he knew what the British were going to do sometimes before they decided. And uh, uh, so uh, he, he knew, and he, he knew what was going on in his cabinet. There's no doubt about it. And and uh, uh, so he, he he, for instance, he found three anonymous letters. Uh, we we found them in his papers, and all of these anonymous letters told him that Thomas Jefferson was his enemy and that he was uh, hoping to succeed him as president. And uh, uh, so, uh, why did Washington save these anonymous letters and leave them in his papers? After he became president, he spent several years arranging his papers and so forth. Uh, those, they, those anonymous letters were not left in his papers by accident. But could Washington have gone up against Jefferson and fired him from the cabinet and, and denounced him? And could that have damaged Jefferson or did Washington It would have, have damaged Jefferson, but he th I think he, Washington felt it would also damage him. And he didn't want that kind of acrimony in his administration. So he instead uh, uh, opposed Jefferson obliquely, uh, particularly when... Uh, uh, the, the, this new French ambassador uh, arrived on the scene, uh, uh, Edmond Genet, and, and uh, he was a radical from the, the French Revolution, you know, and he, he despised this proclamation of neutrality, neutrality, and he started commissioning privateers in various American ports as if the proclamation of neutrality, neutrality didn't exist. And uh, Jefferson, rather uh, Washington, was anything but amused by this. And then uh, this this gentleman, Genet, uh, made a big mistake. He started telling people that he was going to call Congress. He personally was going to summon Congress and demand that they choose between him and old man Washington. And the next thing you know, a newspaper in New York had found out from John Jay, who was the Chief Justice and very close to Washington, uh, they found out from from uh, this this newspaper that this Janay had called Washington old man Washington and was ready to push him aside. A huge explosion of anger swept the whole country. There were thousands of petitions that poured into Philadelphia telling Washington he was their man and Mr. Janay might as well just get the next boat home, which is pretty much what he had to do. And uh, this was Washington at work behind the scenes, yeah, there's no doubt about it. You say in your book, you refer to Washington as a masterful politician. Yes, I think he was, he really was. Uh, when when, when the Congress uh, was, was arguing about uh, whether to uh, uh, do something about this threat to secede in western Pennsylvania, Washington just decided as president, we're not going to put up with this. And so he summoned 13,000 militiamen from the neighboring states, put a very good Revolutionary War General Henry Lee in command, and they marched into western Pennsylvania. And that was the end of the so-called Whiskey Rebellion. And then Washington went on 
uh, went, went on, got, got up in front of Congress, and he said that the reason why this, this uh, move to secede and destroy the Union had emerged was because there were these what they called democratic societies, which were very similar to uh, France's Jacobin clubs, which had gone turn the radicalism loose in, in the French Revolution, and these democratic societies were doing the same thing. And Washington ferociously denounced them as, uh, as not representing the people and, and dangerous and so forth and so forth. And Jefferson, oh, he was beside himself. He was attacking free speech, et cetera, et cetera. And no matter how, all, how hard uh, and, and loud Jefferson lamented this, the democratic societies all disappeared within about a year. And then came this, uh, this struggle over whether to sign a, a new treaty of, of, of friendship with Britain. And it wasn't the best treaty in the world, but it kept us out of the war. And Washington signed it and sent it to the Senate, and the Senate agreed with him and approved it. But it was a huge brawl. And, and, uh, and, and why, why, why did uh, Washington do it? Because he saw that uh, with, without this treaty, we would have drifted into a war with Britain. But more to the point, it, 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 it persuaded the British to surrender these six forts in the West that they had. They were supposed to surrender in the peace treaty, and they never did for various reasons. And they were arming the Indians and really fighting a ferocious Indian war out there in the West and, and killing thousands of Americans. And uh, so... Uh, uh, he, he, by, by having the British uh, surrender these forts, he, he basically disarmed these Indians and opened the West to a settlement in, in a very important way. It was a crucial turning point in American history. And, but Jefferson didn't see this. And so but Washington came before Congress again. He, he, he spoke to Congress once a year, you know, uh, something that Jefferson didn't like and didn't approve. And, uh, and, and so he... And he announced, uh, that, that rather, I'm, I'm just pausing a moment, uh, everybody thought this was going to be another angry rant, you know, as he denounced the democratic societies. Instead, he got up on the podium and he smiled at Congress. And he said, gentlemen, I have wonderful news for you. And the next thing you know, he was telling that telling them that they had persuaded the Spanish to allow the Western states to export all of their prados and their goods and what have you uh, through New Orleans, which meant there never would be another whiskey rebellion and everybody in the West calmed down. And here was, here was this smiling figure and he ended his speech by congratulating America for being at peace while Europe was racked by war. The, there's where the master politician came into play. Everybody in Congress said, we're not going to go up against this guy. We'll, we'll get our brains beaten out politically. You say here that when, when George Washington gave his farewell address, yes. uh, it can and should be read as it was by men and women in 1796 as a demolition of Thomas Jefferson and his political party. Absolutely. So Washington finally went public uh, against yeah, yeah, Well, he, no, he never named Jefferson uh, in this whole thing. Uh, but he said that the two, it, 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 it's a great, great 
piece of writing, uh, the, 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 the uh, uh, farewell address. And Washington wrote it working with Hamilton. You know, they sent it different versions back and forth between them. And, uh, but what it said was uh, we should never have a country that we favor more than any other country but our own. Our, our own country is the only country that matters. And it's also very important uh, n not to uh, nurse grudges against fellow uh, Americans of, about politics and so forth and so forth. And uh, he didn't have to say that this was an attack on Jefferson. It was understood throughout the, the whole country that it was a demolition. And Jefferson's followers and so forth were infuriated, but the rest of the country thought it was a wonderful, wonderful essay. And especially uh, was his, his call for the Union. That, 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 that message, the, the importance of the Union, that was the essence of Washington's purpose as president, to cement this Union in this country and avoid the split up that, that, that would have wrecked the happiness of this whole continent. How did Jefferson absorb that politically and then end up as president a few years later? Uh, he, uh, Jefferson became president uh, because A, Washington had died. And if, if he had been alive, he would have campaigned very vigorously under the table, of course, against Jefferson. And Adams was running for re-election. John Adams had succeeded him as president. And to give you an idea, and Jefferson ran against Adams in, in 1796. To give you an idea which side Jefferson was on, Washington was on, uh, they were having a, they, they hadn't finished counting all the votes from all the states, but Washington as president was getting a lot of inside information. And at, at some reception that President Adams was giving, Mrs. Washington sidled up to John Adams and said, uh, President Washington asked me to give you a message. He wants to tell you how happy he is that you're going to be the next president. <laughs> so Thomas Jefferson ended up as John Adams' vice president. He was his vice president. And when the Alien and Sedition Acts were passed, to yes. Yes. basically to silence the Jefferson's party, Yes. How did Jefferson react to that? Uh, oh, Jefferson uh, was was absolutely undone by these acts. He he uh, he, he felt now Washington and, and 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 President Adams thought these these acts were justified for at least the first year because there was a definite threat of a war with France. They were war measures, and that's why Washington supported them. Uh, but but. Once the French uh, threat of war dissolved and, and, uh, and, and the, the, the various uh, judges, Supreme Court justices and so forth, continued to prosecute people under these Alien and Sedition Acts, uh, by this time Washington had died. And, and, and Adams should have known better but didn't. Uh, and uh, so uh, there Jefferson had indeed had a case that they were silencing people and, and, and offending free speech. And here's the bad part of, the, of what Jefferson did in this crucial moment. He asked Madison to persuade the Virginia legislature to write a letter, an open letter, saying that they opposed these Alien and Sedition Acts. And, and Madison did a very nice temperate job. They didn't agree, you know, but he asked, he asked the Virginia legislature to respectfully tell Congress they disagreed and so forth. But Jefferson had written another letter to the Kentucky legislature, and they were a little more hot-headed out there anyway, and so was Jefferson. And he told them that if you can't get Congress to rescind these acts, you should consider seceding from the Union. He used this awful word, 
And while he was vice president. While he was vice president. And that was the beginning of the, the, the seeds, you might say, of the Civil War. There were a million men, uh, uh, 60 years later, a million young Americans would die because he wrote that word. He, uh, later on, uh, in, 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 after Jefferson had become president and, re and retired, and Madison was president, uh, and, and even after that, they, when they started to talk about maybe we should secede and so forth, the people like John Calhoun, uh, Madison claimed that Jefferson never used the word secession, and various people sent him letters with these Kentucky resolutions saying, yes, he did. And so this was a, uh, a very tragic mistake on Jefferson's part. It really was. Why were Madison and James Monroe such loyal followers of Thomas Jefferson? Uh, they were fellow Virginians, and uh, uh, that was the main thing. But Madison had a special feeling for Jefferson. He began his political career as <clears throat> when Jefferson was governor. He was one of his counselors. <clears throat> and so Jefferson was the first man to recognize Madison's talents as a politician and especially as a political thinker. And Madison came to value his political thinking. Uh, excuse me. Jefferson came to value Madison's political thinking to a very large degree. And, and uh, uh, to give a good example, uh, <clears throat> Uh, when shortly, shortly before he came home f from France and becoming uh, Secretary of State, he wrote the longest letter he ever wrote in his life to Madison. And he said, I have a new idea that can change everything. The earth belongs to the living. We sh every generation should feel free to cancel the debts of the previous generation. And, and then he, he went on explaining how each generation ha should maybe even write a new constitution and so forth. And he sent this long letter to Madison, and Madison read it, and he was quiet for a few days. And finally he decided candor had to be uh, the, the rule. And he utterly, totally demolished this idea the idea of canceling debts and so forth and so forth. It was, it, was, it was almost humiliating, and Jefferson never brought it up again. He never tried to answer Madison, and it gives you a glimpse of what a, 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 more, a superior thinker Madison was politically than Jefferson. There's no doubt about it. Did Madison it. and Monroe ever have a problem with the, doing Jefferson's uh, dirty work? Uh, <clears throat> No, because uh, we've, it, it depends on what you mean by dirty work. They, they did protest various things and so forth. Uh, yes, uh, uh, and then Monroe, uh, Jefferson, uh, rather Washington, one of his better moves, uh, appointed Monroe as a, uh, 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 the ambassador to France. And <clears throat> uh, he went completely unbalanced. Uh, he, was, he was telling the French. Monroe? Did yeah, Monroe. He, 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 he became so un un-neutral, uh, you might say, in, in, his, uh, in his statements and so forth and so forth, that <coughs> Washington was disgusted and recalled him. And Monroe responded with a 400-page essay denouncing George Washington. And guess who edited the essay, and a lot of people think wrote most of it, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, so again, you see this, this glimpse of this antagonism between these two men. Uh, and, and it came out again when, 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 Matt, when Jefferson became president. He, I, I have, I, perhaps again going a little too far, but I called uh, Jefferson the un-Washington president. 
I say, and I think this, it can be sustained to, to a considerable extent, that almost everything he did as president was something that Washington didn't do. For instance, the, uh, speaking to Congress <coughs> once a year, uh, we think now, of course, every president, done, every president does that. No. Jefferson stopped speaking to Congress. He sent them a long letter, and a clerk read it. And, <coughs> and, and for a hundred years, presidents did not speak to Congress. That was the power of Jefferson's example. And, and then uh, uh, Jefferson got very, very lucky as, as, uh, as president. He was able to purchase Louisiana from uh, the French. <clears throat> That's a complicated story. I don't know whether we want to get into it here. But uh, he permitted Napoleon to send an army. Jefferson did. He encouraged him to send an army to what we now call Haiti. Napoleon wanted to recapture control of this sugar colony, which was worth hundreds of millions of, of francs to the French. <clears throat> and what, and, and uh, Jefferson said, you have my approval and we'll get rid of this black dictator, Toussaint Louverture. Toussaint Louverture was not a dictator. <clears throat> and he had been befriended by President Adams. And we were trying to encourage a, 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 a French, uh, a, a, a black republic in Haiti. Uh, we knew it was going to be slow because so many of them had been slaves and they weren't, not, they weren't educated enough and so forth. But Jefferson wanted them wiped off the, wipe this, this whole black pseudo republic off the face of the earth. And he, and but what happened is that instead Napoleon's army was destroyed by yellow fever, and a black general then marched across Haiti and killed every living white man, woman, and children. And from that time on. You could not persuade Jefferson to discuss freeing the slaves. And most of the people in the South were haunted by this memory of this race war. And it all goes back to Jefferson's encouraging Napoleon to send this army. What did Thomas Jefferson think of Napoleon? Because it seems like they're sort of polar opposites. You would think so. But at this point, uh, when Napoleon sent uh, <coughs> the army to, uh, to uh, Santo Domingo, which was the name of the bigger island that Haiti was on, uh, he, was, he was one of three councils. He hadn't become the dictator of France. And he was still French. And, Nepal, and Jefferson's love affair with France was continuing. And only after he started to get rumors from uh, France, from various people, that Napoleon planned to conquer uh, Santo Domingo, and then he was going to ship this army to New Orleans. And then he was going to march them up the Mississippi, and he was going to turn America into a French satellite. And Jefferson was really appalled and absolutely terrified. At one point, he said, we must marry ourselves to the British fleet. Uh, and that's how far, he, how shaken he was by this discovery. But uh, the, the, the fact that the, the yellow fever uh, destroyed the, French's, the, the French army, that gave the, uh, Jefferson the chance to purchase Louisiana. And it's impossible to overestimate what this did for Jefferson's popularity. At, 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 at that point, 
uh, Jefferson looked like he might not even be reelected president. He, there was a rumor around that he had been having illegitimate children by a, a woman slave of his, uh, and he denied it, of course, and so did James Madison. Uh, but that, that, and again, it's less, I don't think we ought to get into that here. But uh, he was he was very on the he was on the brink of being very unpopular, and <clears throat> I, I, this opening of this a third of the continent. Doubling the size, and and the men behind Jefferson, his his politicians, his political uh, advisors, you might say, or handlers, they knew exactly what to do with it. They began celebrating the conquering a third of the continent without any effusion of blood. Now, who was he comparing him to when they say that? There was another leader that conquered the first third of the continent, but he effused a lot of blood. That's George Washington. So this was a way of saying, our guy is better than your guy. Well, when Jefferson became president, did, how did he conduct himself as president compared to his philosophies of uh, uh, what yes. a president should be? The, president was, the, pres the, the Congress was supposed to be the voice of the people, and the president was not supposed to be the leader telling them what to do. So as far as the people were concerned, that's all they saw. Je Jefferson never addressed Congress. He sent these letters, which pretty much were ignored, and <clears throat> uh, once a year. Uh, but uh, but, they, but what, what he did do was he invited leading congressmen to come to his uh, his what was called it wasn't called the White House yet to come to his residence, and they had a wonderful dinner. And, and Jefferson told them what he wanted them to do in Congress and so forth. And they more or less said, "Absolutely, Mr. President." And out they went and did it. And then Jefferson just signed the bill. And but it was Congress that was doing it, not this bad man, the president, telling telling these poor congressmen what to do. In oh, in the time, I want to make sure we fit in in the time we have left the Jefferson and the embargo. Yes. And uh, because you write about it, without almost no discussion on its merits, Congress passed the Embargo, embargo Act, which forbade American ships to trade with Britain, France, and every other nation in the world. And then you say at one point, Jefferson says it will rest with the wisdom of Congress to decide on the course best adapted to the, such a state of things. And you talk about Jefferson basically uh, handing he over his. He quit. He did it all. He, he did what he did as governor. Yeah. You say the bankruptcy of his uh, administration. Well, it was. Uh, the, the embargo was one of the greatest blunders that any president has ever committed. Uh, <clears throat> somebody said, uh, somebody said, comparing it, they said, it's like <clears throat> uh, cutting a man's throat to, to, to cure uh, uh, a, a, a bad cold. Uh, uh, he, they said uh, it, it, it was totally unnecessary. He was, he was convinced that this would keep America out of the wars uh, 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 that were raging all over the world. But it destroyed the whole American commercial fleet. There were 40 to 50,000 unemployed sailors rioting in all the ports. And then they started trying to do business with Canada. And the next thing you know, Jefferson announced he was going to send troops up there to forbid anybody to do any, co any commerce with Florida. He, he basically tried to bring the commerce of the United States to a dead stop. But this was the commercial nation that Hamilton and Washington together had already created. And the, the reaction among the merchants and all the people who worked for them and so forth was horrendous. It was, it really was, uh, and, and, and Jefferson did not know 
what to do. He, he couldn't eat his own words. So he said those fateful words. Perhaps Congress has an answer to this problem. I don't. That Washington would have, I think, cut his own throat rather than confess that the president of the United States was that weak, that he didn't have an answer to a fundamental pro political problem. And, and so th this was a, a very sad, and in many ways, way of ending Jefferson's presidency. He, he basically started shipping all his furniture back to Monticello and met, let Madison, who was his secretary of state, become president. Uh, acting president, and then he was elected president right after that and served two terms. Did, did Madison ever publicly break with Jefferson? He never did. He remained his faithful friend, but uh, there was a fascinating glimpse of, of, uh, of how, how he changed his thinking after he became president, uh, after he left the presidency, rather. Uh, he's, he, he, he fought a Jeffersonian war in the War of 1812. We didn't need a trained regular army. All we needed was inspiring words and so forth and so forth. We lost almost every battle in, during the War of 1812 until Jackson, Andrew Jackson rescued us at the Battle of New Orleans. That would have put, if the, if the British had won that, they would have taken over the whole Mississippi Valley. And uh, so it was a very close call. When Madison was in his last year as president, we were at peace, he sent a message to Congress and he said, one thing that we must do is we must begin working on creating a trained regular army. <laughs> Absolutely anti-Jeffersonian. And meanwhile, and during, Jefferson's, uh, during Madison's administration, the Bank of the United States had expired. It, it had a, a limited run, you know. And, and uh, it, it didn't get renewed by Congress. And the, the finances of the United States was so, so messed up, they didn't have enough money to pay the clerks in Washington, D.C. in the middle of the War of 1812. So again, Madison said to Congress in his, his last year in office, what we need to do is renew the Bank of the United States. And it should be a, a very close imitation of the Bank of England. Somewhere in Monticello, Jefferson's heart was breaking. <laughs> it was an incredible swing back to Washington. It was really amazing. And then there's one more touch. Jefferson was doing something very wonderful, incidentally, founding the University of Virginia. And he asked Madison for some things that the, the students should read. And Madison gave him a number of suggestions that would help them understand democ uh, the, the republic and, and politics and so forth. And then he said the one thing that nobody expected him to say. And I also think they should all read George Washington's farewell address. Well, we'll have to end it on that note. We have been talking with Thomas Fleming. He is the author of this book, The Great Divide, The Conflict Between Washington and Jefferson that Defined a Nation. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Brian. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.